2: You're smart. No one denies that. But are you smart enough to know what you don't know? Most of us aren't. In fact, as a species, we're spectacularly incompetent at assessing our own incompetency. Find out why your brain is driven to wrongness and also why you're in good company. Some brilliant scientists have made brilliant blunders. This is Big Picture Science and our monthly look at critical thinking, Skeptic Check.
1: We've all met this guy at a party.
3: All right, so Christopher Columbus. He first sailed across the ocean from Italy in 14-something. Uh, and so then, once 1492. He was... What's that? He sailed in 1492. No, it was earlier than that. <laughs> anyway... He sails across the Atlantic Ocean with three ships, and he lands in the Caribbean. And then he goes
1: looking around... Huh? Where in the Caribbean did Columbus land? Where? In the... Cuba. It it was in Cuba. Anyway, he called this
3: the New World, and so once Christopher
1: Columbus landed in San Salvador, they think.
3: Sorry, but no. I've actually taken a class in American history. Anyway, there was the Nina, the Pinta, and the third one of his ships, the uh, Santa Ana. Well, it got a hole in it. And so, with a little help from Magellan, Yes, on... that guy.
2: Knows some stuff, but not very well. He took an American history class, but that was back when he was in college, way back. The stuff he doesn't remember about Columbus's voyage, well, he just makes it up. But that doesn't stop him from pontificating as an authority. And here's the thing. He doesn't know he's wrong. I'm Seth Shostak. And here's
1: the other thing. It's not just the guy at the party who does this. It's you. It's all of us. I'm Molly Bentley, and welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where scientists investigate the origin and nature of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get a wide-angle view on science and technology, and to understand both, we need to separate fact from fiction, hypothesis from hyperbole, junk DNA from junk science. And so we devote one episode a month to critical thinking, Skeptic Check.
2: The American writer William Feather once wrote that being educated means being able to differentiate between what you know and what you don't. Turns out that's difficult to do. This episode of Skeptic Check, are you sure you're sure?
1: Hey, Seth. Ask me about some scientific concept that's not too difficult, and I'm going to see if I can explain it to you.
2: Okay. Here's a question that every fourth grader asks. Why why is the sky blue? Why is it blue? The sun isn't blue. I will
1: will tell you why it is. Okay. (laughs) Because uh, the light, as it comes through our atmosphere, is diffracted in such a way that the red light is absorbed and the blue light is what's left...
2: The red light is absorbed. I wonder where it all goes. probably just heats up the atmosphere. (laughs) Maybe maybe we have to send out aircraft to pick it up.
1: I learned about this once. Okay, what's the answer?
2: Well, I mean, you know, you're not totally wrong. But uh, since I know the answer and I'm confident that I do... It's it's just because of the way different colors interact with the atoms of the atmosphere. And the the atmosphere scatters all the blue light around and just sort of bounces them all around, whereas the red light just goes right on through. That's why when you look at a sunset, it's red. But when you look at the sky, that's all the bounce light. It's blue.
1: Okay. The thing is that there was a time when I could explain why the sky is blue. And just now, my description, it felt accurate.
2: Well, it was close. It was really quite close. But But that's the thing. Okay, in this case, you knew that you weren't certain of your explanation, but the trouble with ignorance is that often we're just not aware of it. We think we know. We have such a feeling that we're right. And that's okay if you're talking about the scattering behavior of photons, but maybe it's not okay if you're making decisions about your financial investments.
1: David Dunning is a smart guy who studies ignorance, a leading researcher on the psychology of why being wrong feels so right. His work at Cornell University about the accuracy of human judgment may bust a few egos. His recent cover story in the Pacific Standard, We Are All Confidence Idiots. David, I love the example that you provided in your article from the late night show Jimmy Kimmel Live where a reporter would go into the street and ask people at the music festival south by southwest about their opinion for bands that don't exist so they'd say things like what do you think of tonya and the hardings for example and how would people respond
4: Uh, they respond with their opinions that is the uh, (laughs) the bands may not exist but uh, their opinions did exist and that's not a surprise actually in in research We have found, and other people have found, that if you ask people about fictitious things or non-existent things, uh, many of them are perfectly happy giving you an opinion about them.
1: Well, is it more than saying, oh, they're great, that band is great? Will they go into specifics?
4: Yes, uh, they will. So, for example, you (laughs) mentioned uh, uh, Tanya and the Hardings, and uh, there was uh, one pedestrian that Jimmy Kimmel found at South by Southwest who talked about how hard-hitting they were and how this all-female band was really impressing men. And um, that's all inference because, as far as I know, Tiny and the Hardings don't exist.
1: So it sounds like, on one hand, people don't want to sound stupid. They find it hard to say, I don't know, in a, in a variety of situations when they're asked the questions. But you write that there are deeper reasons for this compulsion to answer. What are they?
4: It's not just that uh, people uh, don't like saying, I don't know. Uh, often they will have some sort of notion or idea in their head that they think is relevant, that they think is informative. And the reason for that is humans are inveterate theory spinners and storytellers and pattern finders in the world. So if there's uh, something out there that needs to be explained or talked about, uh, people can uh, easily spin stories. that They can tell each other really out of gossamer as opposed to anything factual.
1: One example that you give came from a study in which you had asked respondents if they're familiar with certain kinds of technical scientific mm. concepts. Uh-huh. And you had actually made some of these up. So what kind of response did you get when you asked people whether they knew what plates of parallax were or an ultralipid?
4: Uh, Well, what we got is we had people claim some familiarity with those terms. Now, we didn't ask anything more than that. We just asked, are you familiar with this term? And the correct answer is zero. I've never heard of this before, because as far as we knew, the origin of these terms started in our office when we made them up. But we would have some people claim that they'd heard heard of them before. And this was actually related to how expert people felt they were in that area. So, to the extent someone thought they knew physics, they go, oh, yeah, I've heard of plates of parallax.
1: <laughs> it must have been a fun session to sit around with your colleagues and, and make up these terms.
4: Uh, it can be, uh, absolutely.
1: <laughs> but But to be fair, one might be familiar with parallax or even with plates, be thinking of plate tectonics or something, and even the word lipid. And so often in these cases, don't people know something about a subject. They're sort of familiar with the term. They've read a book. They've heard an interview. It sounds like something that they know. And at one time, they may have known something about the subject, not in the case of the words that you made up. And so we feel like we have a right to respond and talk about a subject as though we are knowledgeable.
4: No, that's right. I mean, you know, each of us has a a tremendous number of metaphors, theories, facts. And so when we're asked a question, I mean, it's not that we're a blank slate, what we are is we are a cluttered addict of a lot of different ideas. And from those ideas, we can potentially find something that's relevant and decide that that's uh, part of the answer. And sometimes we're going to be right, and sometimes what we're going to do is we're going to completely misapply a principle. Another example like this um, is I came across a survey with 25,000 respondents in the US uh, and the survey was on uh, people's financial habits and financial experiences. And one of the experiences they were asked about was, did you file for bankruptcy within the last two years? And so I decided to take a look at those people relative to everybody else and were they the same or how were they different from everybody else? And what was interesting was that their financial literacy was very low compared to everybody else. There was a quiz in the survey But they rated their financial literacy higher than everybody else. And when I dug in the the data a little bit deeper, what I discovered is that people who had suffered bankruptcy were more willing to give false answers than to say, I don't know. And that completely explained this separation between their lack of actual knowledge but their belief in their knowledge.
1: So there are real consequences to overstate how much we know. I mean, we may be ignorant, but to convince ourselves that we are not ignorant about a subject, in this case our financial health, is a problem.
4: It is a problem. I mean, uh, there are a number of times, either in our everyday life, even for a professional, uh, like a doctor, where they should be turning to someone else uh, for advice. They really don't have the right answer, and they could use a consult, for example. Uh, but we don't realize that. And as a consequence, we make the wrong move as opposed to the right move.
1: Now, this is all part of an area of research called metacognition, and this is the study of people's understanding of their own knowledge. And I believe that there's a phenomenon uh, that you have described called the Dunning Kruger effect. Oh, yes. Okay, that you developed with a colleague, Dunning, obviously your name, um, mm-hmm. in that people who are incompetent just cannot recognize how incompetent they are. Now, notice how I referred, <laughs> this is other people, right? Because it's certainly not me. I mean, we never think that this refers to ourselves. Are we all walking around? Not aware of our own incompetence?
4: Not all of us, uh, (laughs) and not in every culture, by the way. But in psychology, you look for trends, and one of the biggest trends that you will see in in North America and Western Europe is overconfidence, people overrating their skills and overrating their expertise. And you mentioned the Dunning-Kruger effect. Um, Our take on that is that that problem is a problem that visits all of us sooner or later. That is, there's a limit to what we know. And what each of us is unaware of, is where that limit is. That is, there's a boundary line between what we know and what we don't know. And when we cross that boundary line, we're not aware that we're crossing that boundary line.
1: Now, you said that you did not find this inability to recognize how incompetent we are across cultures. And in some cultures, this is not the case. Can you give an example?
4: If you take a look at this grand tendency of North Americans and Western Europeans to overrate themselves and overrate their expertise and overrate their moral character... You don't find that general overrating if you move to Japan, for example, or South Asia, for example, that if there's going to be a slight bias, the slight bias might be to underestimate the self as opposed to overestimate the self. Researchers will often refer to our culture as the self-affirmational culture. Uh, We want to maintain happiness and self-esteem. For people in other cultures, their accent is more on self-improvement. They want to become the best person they can become. And that means you pay a lot more attention to your own weaknesses. You seek your weaknesses out and you work on your weaknesses. And other people are more willing to point out your weaknesses. It's part of of what that culture does.
1: Now, what's interesting about there being any variance in culture is that much of this, as you said earlier, is rooted in biology. So one of the byproducts of us having big brains... (laughs) is that Mm. we're intelligent, but we seek out patterns, and we're adept at storytelling, as you mentioned, and many times that helps us out, but it also leads us astray.
4: That's right. Uh, That is, uh, we're born, and we immediately start theorizing about this world around us, and as soon as we figure out that we are a a person, we start theorizing about ourselves as well.
1: When you mean immediately, even as young children?
4: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Young children are trying to figure out uh, what works, uh, if you will. And we see patterns, we look for patterns. Uh, Another way to put it is that uh, if we go outside and look at the clouds, we're very good at imagining those clouds as being farm animals or someone's face. Well, uh, not every task in the world is uh, evolutionarily significant. That is, we're, we're set up to find patterns that are going to be evolutionarily significant that are going to help our survival. But now in the modern world, we have a lot of other tasks that um, really, uh, really isn't relevant to our ev- evolutionary survival, like finding the latest app for our iPhone, for example. But we still have this capability of uh, rummaging around in our own minds, looking out there in the world, and then cobbling together some sort of story or some sort of theory from the little shards of information that we do have.
1: Well, finally, David, how confident are you about everything you discussed here today? <laughs> is there anything you'd like to amend or footnote?
4: Uh, let me leave you with this caution, which is there probably is something that I should amend or should revise or should take back. Unfortunately, I just don't know what it is.
1: <laughs> David Dunning, thank you so much for speaking with us.
4: Oh, my pleasure. David Dunning is a
2: psychologist at Cornell University. And we are certain that his article, We Are All Confidence Idiots, appears in the November-December 2014 issue of the Pacific Standard. The average or maybe even the above average person is going to be overconfident about what he or she knows, but not those of us who went through years of rigorous training in logic, rational thinking, double-blind studies, not scientists. Nope.
1: Turns out, scientists are also fooled by what they think they know. Find out how next. It's our monthly look at critical thinking on Big Picture Science Skeptic Check. Are you sure you're sure?
0: Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.
2: We're talking about our susceptibility to not just making mistakes, but our obliviousness to the fact that we're doing so. And yes, you figure that this may apply to Mr. and Mrs. Average or Mr. and Mrs. Above Average. But surely not to our elite force of highly trained logical thinkers. Bob, we think of scientists as being dispassionate, seekers of the truth, free of personal bias that might skew their work somehow. Is that an accurate picture? No. <laughs> that, that's straightforward.
1: Why is it not neurologist Robert Burton, author of On Being Certain, Believing You Are Right Even When You're Not?
5: We all like to think of ourselves as thinking clearly from A to B to C, and that is in fact how it feels to us, but that's not actually how the mind works.
2: Even a scientist trained in rational thought still has a working subconscious. And important to note, most of our thought occurs at a subconscious level. All of those subjective understandings of the world were put there during our upbringing. The scientific training, that was layered over it. Seth, when was the last time you were wrong about a scientific idea? (laughs) You might better ask, when was the last time I was right, actually? Uh... I was wrong about uh, an observation of a group of galaxies. This was back, I don't know, in the 1970s or something. I thought we had found something really significant that might suggest that when you measure the speed at which a galaxy is moving away from you, that didn't have anything to do with the expansion of the universe. But it turns out it was wrong. I think I was influenced by the idea that we might have discovered something so interesting that I kind of ignored the possibility that maybe it was just an error in measurement. And you thought you were being rational at the time. Well, I always do.
1: So scientists say that they're being rational, and they are, but it's not the whole story. Just like everyone else, they're influenced by their innate subjectivity. Hypotheses that they're sure are right. Envy over the success of a colleague, perhaps. Excitement over discovering something new. The scientific method irons out errors caused by bias, says Dr. Burton, but it takes time, as it did years ago when he and his colleagues proposed a novel procedure to prevent stroke.
5: A young neurologist in the faculty at UCSF, some vascular surgeons, and I proposed a study for whether or not narrowed arteries in the neck, the so-called carotid artery, whether preemptive surgery in asymptomatic people would prevent stroke. Unfortunately, the study was not accepted by the Human Ethics Committee because the chairman of the Department of Neurology said it's obvious that the surgery is worthless and the chairman of the vascular surgery department said he wouldn't allow it because it was obvious that the surgery worked because of their inherent biases one person not believing in surgery in general and because the other believing in surgery as a panacea for prevention of stroke the two people actually could not agree to do a study that was designed to try and decide which one of them was correct both of them were actually certain of their position based upon their training, their envy of the other person's position, and so on. It took 10 years to get the study approved.
2: So in this case, unconscious biases mitigated against even doing the experiment. But, you know, if you ask a middle school student about how science is conducted. They'll they'll probably parrot the scientific method, you know, formulate an hypothesis, try to falsify it, and so forth. I mean in the real world, doesn't that at least provide a framework for objective inquiry?
5: It does. Let me make this clear. We only learn through science as far as objective facts about the world. And I do not by any stretch of the imagination wish to denigrate science. But you have to understand how The questions of science arise out of your entire mind, which is predominantly subliminal in terms of how the brain works. So, for example, for many years, it was thought that narrowing of the coronary arteries was the main cause of coronary artery disease. As a result, all the treatments and the way of thinking about it was sort of hydraulic. Narrowed arteries equals decreased blood supply to the heart. And it's only recently that people have realized that the artery narrowing is associated with an equal, if not more important, phenomenon, namely inflammation of the arteries of the heart. Unfortunately, there was a lot of evidence to suggest that 50 years ago, but because people shaped their inquiries based upon their consensus opinion, the sort of mechanistic view of how the heart worked at that time and didn't consider the alternative, namely inflammatory disease as being the underlying substrate of atherosclerosis. So here's an example where all the studies on coronary artery disease arose out of a bias based upon prevailing contemporary standards and it was only with a paradigm shift that people understood, wait a minute, this isn't exactly the way to go about thinking about it. So that, that's a good example where maybe it took 50 years for scientific thought to change
2: I can imagine that this feeling that we already know the answer, such as you've cited here in these examples, might have an obvious evolutionary explanation. I mean, isn't it a short circuit to quick reaction and something that might have saved our hides back in the days of our savannah-dwelling ancestors?
5: Yes, you know, the feeling of knowing that you're right is an involuntary sensation that the brain creates, and it's there for at least a couple of reasons. One is you've got to make snap judgments. If a tiger's charging at you, you don't have a time to do a control study.
2: And, and it also feels good to, to think yes. that we know the answer, right?
5: And not only that, yes, it turns out that these sensations of being right are generated by the reward systems in the brain, so they're in the same general category as alcohol and drugs and so on. They, they're super pleasurable. And conversely, feeling that doubt is counterproductive in that regard. And also, you just need that sense of knowing to even proceed with doing a project in order to think, I think X will cause Y. You've got to have some belief in it before you have any evidence for it. So in doing science, you have to start with a premise that feels right even before you know it's right. So there's an inherent bias before you even get started with doing the study. You'd never do a study that you thought was wrong
2: isn't this argument also used against science and scientists? Skeptics say that the scientists are too certain, that they're smug uh, about their results, unwilling to entertain any doubt in their conclusions.
5: Well, that's right. And I think the problem really is that science moves with a step forward, a step backward, a step sideways. It moves through successive trial and error steps that are by the very definition, progress in science requires that you be wrong lots of times in order to find the right answer. So if it's going to be trial and error, it's very easy to pick apart science and think, well these guys are making mistakes or they're biased and all the rest, but it's, it's all you have to recognize is, yes it does work through bias, but you keep honing your answers, refining your techniques and moving forward, albeit with considerable number of blunders along the way. I'm actually of the belief that we should start looking at science as human beings who are trying to do the right thing but have the same basic defects as everybody else who's trying to do the right thing.
2: Well, how do you figure then the scientific method is working? I mean, is science really self-correcting?
5: Over a long enough period of time. In other words, uh, you know, the Thomas Kuhn and the paradigm shift and so on. Basically, I told you the story about coronary artery disease going from primarily a hydraulic theory of narrowed vessels to one of more of inflammatory disease. It took a long time for that to come about, and still, because of our gut feeling about narrowed artery versus non-narrowed artery, we can't get beyond that. So the next generation will probably do better. So it's self-correcting over a long period of time where theories gradually gain hold and old theories fall away.
2: Do you have a lot of sympathy for people who claim that scientists are wrong on issues where the majority of them seem to have a consensus as to what is true and what is not.
5: No, I, I, it's gray versus black and white. For example, for every 100 people who operate outside the mainstream of, let's say, science, 99 out of 100 are going to probably turn out to be quacks or charlatans or ill-advised. One out of a 100 might really have a really good idea. And the problem is that when you're trying to judge science You have to judge by consensus opinion. So if most people have a good idea, the chances are pretty high that it's right. On the other hand, there is an occasional outlier that changes the whole way we think about science. It's hard to know how to incorporate those into a worldview of science that includes the idea that consensus opinion is most likely to be correct, deviant opinions are most likely to be wrong, but the occasional Great ideas most likely going to rise out of the deviant opinion.
2: Well, finally, Bob, clearly scientists are not research robots, fully objective. <laughs> but maybe in the future, robots, artificial intelligence, will be better at doing science than we are. Somewhat of a speculative thought, but uh, how do you regard that?
5: Well, from talking to some of my friends at Google and so on, it's pretty obvious that artificial intelligence and data mining are going to come up with whole new ideas as to underlying causes of, let's say, illness. They may well surpass what any human being can do with his limited experience. I have no serious doubt that within even my lifetime, we will see data management producing major changes in how we conceptualize disease. I mean, for example, at Sloan Kettering now, they're gathering the data on every single person who's ever been through there with any form of cancer, and they're finding out that cancers may be falsely classified. In other words, we classify it now according to site of origin, you know, breast cancer, colon cancer, whatever, but it may be that they'll be classified in the future by genetic defects. Well, that would be an example where, although as human beings we might think that way, we really need the computer power to prove it. In that case, the computer's already bypassing us in terms of presenting us with new theories So I think AI probably will have a major effect on science going forward.
2: Robert Burton, thank you so very much for speaking with us today.
5: Thanks, Seth. It's been my pleasure.
2: Robert Burton is a
1: neurologist, and he is the author of On Being Certain, Believing You Are Right Even When You're Not, and A Skeptic's Guide to the Mind, What Neuroscience Can and Cannot Tell Us About Ourselves. Robert Burton says that even scientists, those paragons of logical, rational, and analytic thought, are still guided to their conclusions by their subconscious. Well, fortunately, if they've been schooled in the methods of science, that training will usually lead them to a truthful result based on data. But what if they're not getting the right
2: data? Dartmouth political scientist Brendan Nyhan says some research results that should be published are not, and those that are might be marginal. They found the effect they're looking for, but... The evidence is just not entirely compelling. He especially worries about this as it applies to government-funded science research. Well, scientific research is
6: funded by the government across scientific fields, from health to medicine
2: to physics to the social sciences. Basic research in these important areas leads to our understanding of fundamental phenomena to nature itself. He has no problem spending money on basic research.
1: But he argues that the academic publishing model is getting in the way of making the most of these research dollars. There's a reluctance to publish if your results aren't at least a bit mind-blowing. Well, the problem is that scientific research
6: is driven by the incentives to publish in the most prestigious journals. That creates incentives to publish the most provocative findings possible, and especially when you're doing empirical research, to publish statistically significant findings. That statistical significance filter that's imposed by the top journals has a huge effect on the research that's published in our best journals. Okay,
2: statistical significance. What does that mean? Statistical significance is a hard concept. Okay, but here's how to think about it. It it means that the result you got is really for real, and it's not just due to uncertainties in the data or noise in the equipment or something like that. Now, the
6: problem is when you use that sort of approach, it creates an arbitrary threshold at a particular level of statistical significance that's used to determine which
2: studies to publish and which studies not to publish. But let's say you have some new pharmaceutical that you think is effective against disease A— and you give it to lab rats or human lab rats or whatever, and 5% seem to show some improvement in a sample of 100. Well, it could be that that 5% got better due to the drug, yeah, or due to the placebo effect or just because some people recover spontaneously. It wasn't 50%. It wasn't 80%. 5% may not be statistically significant. And so Dr. Nyhan is concerned. So I'm worried about two things. One is the cases where
6: we don't publish a finding where we don't find a statistically significant effect, but the study was important and we don't learn from it because it's not published. The alternative are the studies that are published and they're statistically significant, but there's some evidence that those kinds of studies are being pushed over the margin to statistical significance by fiddling with the results. And that creates a really perverse incentive. There's far too many results that are just barely statistically significant, which we think in the aggregate suggests that researchers are being influenced by that threshold.
1: He says that researchers are actually discouraged from publishing results that aren't spectacular or that don't agree with conventional wisdom. And they do publish studies that perhaps aren't significant. And so scientists, as rational as their brains may be, may be looking at skewed data. And that may have an effect on whether the results
2: can be replicated. In an op-ed for The New York Times, Brendan Nyhan summarized his concern for government-funded research in particular. Uh, you might carry out a study that somebody already tried or produced a null result and, and they just didn't publish it. So you waste your time trying it again. Or you might publish a positive result, but it really only helped a small number of people. Have I got that right? That's right. That's right. There's a diversion of effort into
6: uh, doing research where you're not learning from the studies that have failed in the past. And we see this all the time. We know, for instance, from the clinical trials registry that many drug trial results aren't published when they fail to confirm the hypotheses of the research. And the second problem are those studies that are published when the evidence is shaky and we are perhaps overstating the evidence in favor of those. People then try to build on those results and are surprised to discover that they often can't.
2: Well, you feel strongly enough about this, Brendan, to have written an opinion piece for the New York Times, and you uh, not only point out the problem, but you suggest a solution. What's your suggested solution? So the problem that I think is, is driving
6: this is that it's very difficult after the fact to publish null results, to publish results that don't support the hypothesis that's proposed by the research. And that has all sorts of downstream effects in how research is conducted and reported. So what I propose instead is that researchers should be able to submit articles in advance of conducting the actual study that includes a specified design and analysis plan. Those would be evaluated for their quality, and journals would commit to publish the results of those studies, regardless of how they turned out. It would go into print either way. And then we would observe all of the research is conducted, and it would create an incentive for researchers to design better studies in the first place. One of the most perverse aspects of the current system is it incentivizes people to do lots of small studies because some of those will turn out to be statistically significant by chance alone, as opposed to doing large studies with lots of statistical power, which are better able to estimate more precisely whether
2: hypotheses are true or not true. It seems to me, though, that uh, maybe you're asking the researchers to predict in advance A, how they're going to do their experiment, and B, you know, how they're going to analyze their experiment. And at least in astronomy, I mean, you know, halfway through collecting data, I might have to switch gears. I mean, use a different instrument altogether or analyze something that was totally unforeseen. I mean, there's this discovery aspect of research. Otherwise, it's often not very interesting. And and as a consequence, I really can't predict in advance what I'm going to do. Well, that's right. And it's important to be clear that this
6: isn't the only way to do research, or even the predominant way. But for the most important journals, or for research that we think it's especially important to have credible results this is an option that I think should be available. So it might be the case, for instance, that you start a research project going in a particular direction, and then you find some interesting new bit of information that changes your mind or suggests a new hypothesis. You might then use that new bit of information to test your hypothesis more systematically. So even though you've changed your mind, you've said, well, look, I've got this piece of information. It looks interesting. I've got an interesting theory about it. Here's what I'd like to go test. And now at that point, you go and do what I've described as a pre-accepted article submission, where you ask for pre-acceptance on this claim before you go out and test it more
2: systematically. What about the extra overhead this would involve, Brendan? Uh, The scientists I know spend an inordinate amount of their time writing proposals. That seems to be their job description, write proposals. Wouldn't this just add to the paperwork burden? Well, it would. There's no way around that. The journals would
6: have to adjust their practices, and authors would too. People would allocate their time differently in terms of the relative balance uh, between, for instance, writing up results after the fact versus writing up articles anyway. But right now, in science, we spend a lot of our time writing articles. And what this would do is essentially front load a lot of that process before the submission of the main final version of the article or even the studies conducted. But then you have most of the article already written. so. I'm not sure how much additional labor would actually be
2: required. Well, finally, Brendan, what's the harm in some sense? What's the problem here? Is the fundamental model of how research is done just inefficient, or is it qualitatively harmed? I think it's qualitatively harmed. There's research suggesting,
6: for instance, that major studies published in top medical journals don't replicate so the scientific research base we depend on not only for say our economy but to keep ourselves healthy may be wrong there's famous studies of people failing to replicate huge numbers of for instance cancer studies when they tried to do them in their lab so there's a real danger here of creating this incredibly shaky knowledge base. And of that knowledge base actually getting more shaky over time, there are more people trying to compete for a relatively finite number of slots in those top journals. So I worry this problem could get even worse if we don't do something about it. Brendan Nyhan, thanks so much for
2: speaking with us today. Thank you.
1: Brendan Nyhan is a political scientist at Dartmouth College. So we've heard from two scientists about how error can influence science. Uh, Robert Burton was saying that a lot of our rational thought is influenced by our subconscious, and that goes the same for scientists. They may have a subconscious tendency to produce the results that they want. Uh, But, of course, when you replicate studies, some of that bias is
2: ironed out. Yeah, and Brendan Nyhan has an idea. He has a suggestion about how you might minimize the possibility of getting the wrong answer in science by making it less threatening to the scientists themselves to publish results that aren't in agreement with what they thought they should have gotten in the first place.
1: Next up, a story. There was once a brilliant physicist whose equations revolutionized cosmology by revealing the strangeness of time and space. One day he came up with a theory as to why the universe couldn't be either expanding or contracting. And then he claimed it was his biggest blunder. The weird thing is, he was wrong
2: about being wrong. That story of Al Einstein as well as other brilliant scientists who were wrong about being right. It's our monthly look at critical thinking on big picture science. Skeptic check. Are you sure you're sure?
3: Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet.
2: No one is immune to making errors, but most of them don't affect humanity's view of the universe or of biological evolution or how thermodynamics works. But in the case of scientists, well, they can. And even our best and most brilliant scientists who are always working on the edge of what we know, well, they may fall off that edge and commit some giant error. So
1: when you make a mistake, remind yourself you're in good company. Brilliant blunders, from Darwin to Einstein, colossal mistakes by great scientists that changed our understanding of life and the universe, is the compact title of astrophysicist Mario Livio's collection of big scientific boo-boos.
7: Well, I distinguish between these things which I call brilliant blunders and other blunders that you might call sloppy blunders or blunders out of inexperience. Brilliant blunders, I call those blunders that come when people try to think outside the box. And, uh, you know, when you do that, you sometimes make blunders, but these could also lead to breakthroughs.
2: Well, one thing we might expect is that brilliant scientists, you know, the ones whose names we still hear 100 years or more after their deaths, the impression we have is that they don't make impressive blunders. That's what we think. But your book is entitled Brilliant Blunders, and you write about brilliant scientists like Einstein, Darwin, Lord Kelvin. Are are the blunders really brilliant, or is this simply the blunderers who are brilliant?
7: Both, I would say. In this particular case, it is really both. Namely, you know, I did not choose here some simple mistakes that somebody would make, but really brilliant minds that make really brilliant blunders that eventually lead to new discoveries.
2: All right. Well, let's talk about some examples. Lord Kelvin, who was, I think, known to his mother as William Thompson, maybe as Bill, I don't know. Now, he's a 19th century or was a 19th century British mathematical physicist. Really, thermodynamics was his thing. Many of us know of the Kelvin scale for temperature. Uh, what was his majestic misstep?
7: It was in calculating the age of the Earth basically he got the age of the earth to be shorter than about 100 million years when we now know that it's about four and a half billion years. That in itself might not have been a blunder, except that he he also insisted that he was right even in the face of uh, new evidence that showed quite the opposite.
2: Well, how did he get that number? Where did he get it?
7: Oh, well, this is why this was really brilliant and not some stupid mistake. I mean, he was the first to apply really physics to trying to estimate the age of the Earth. Basically, he said, look, the Earth was formed very hot, and it is cooling ever since. And therefore, if I measure how the temperature changes with the depth of the Earth, I can determine for how long it has been cooling.
2: That sounds pretty good to me. I mean, that sounds like a reasonable idea.
7: It was, I think, a brilliant idea, in fact. The main problem was that he thought that the heat was transported only by conduction, you know, like a skillet on the fire. When in fact, there is quite a bit that goes by convection, namely by motion of fluids, the interior of the earth, even in the parts that are more or less solid, still have some fluidity to them. And therefore, you can have motions of this fluid and the heat is transported more efficiently than he thought.
2: All right, so this wasn't because Lord Kelvin made a mistake on the blackboard. This was just because he neglected to consider an aspect of the phenomenon here.
7: Uh, Yeah, but the point was that even when this was pointed out to him, he still refused to actually include that.
2: Oh, so he died thinking that this was the case.
7: Right. Now, you know, normally you would hear that his mistake was because he did not include radioactivity. And it's true that he didn't, but that, of course, he didn't know about until much later. Uh, It turns out that actually was not the main reason for the wrong number that he got.
2: Well, let's take another, uh, Fred Hoyle. Now, I happen to have met Fred Hoyle on several occasions, so I, you know, at least temporarily overlapped with a guy, another British theoretician, and frankly, a darn smart guy. I mean, he wrote sci-fi novels, he wrote operas, and he didn't believe in the Big Bang. What's, What's the story there?
7: So he actually had a brilliant idea, which was, you know, we think that the universe is the same everywhere, homogeneous, and the same in every direction, isotropic. Well, he basically said, well, why isn't he also not changing with time? Which, you know, is fantastic, would have been really much more elegant than what we think today. So he came up with this idea of a steady state universe, which was extraordinarily elegant, inspired everybody to think hard of the problem, and his model held for about 15 years, maybe. Then, unfortunately, in the face of mounting evidence that there was a Big Bang after all, he still refused to change his mind.
2: Now, wait a minute. Steady-state universe, the idea is that the universe was just always here and, uh, you know, always pretty much the same, except, of course, it's expanding. Don't you need to replace the material that's moving away from you if it's always going to be the same?
7: That's right. So he invented the mechanism. He added the term to Einstein's equations that created new matter. Now, mind you, you know, you might have thought that how can that be, you know, you create new matter. But in fact, Fred Hoyle pointed out correctly that the creation of matter that he suggested was a very, very tiny, slow rate, when in fact the Big Bang theory suggests that the entire matter of the universe appeared all at once. So he thought that his was a more conservative idea.
2: Yeah, well, it was, but, but it turned out to be wrong. I, I think there's some irony here in the fact that Fred Hoyle actually coined the term Big Bang, didn't he?
7: Yeah, that's right. In, in a radio program, he's the person who coined the term Big Bang, but he never believed in it.
2: <laughs> yeah, they, they probably wouldn't have had him as a guest on the television show. <laughs>
7: Well, you know, he was a smart guy. I mean, he was a genius, in fact. Uh, It's just that he was also extremely stubborn and usually liked to think outside the mainstream.
2: Well, maybe those are the characteristics you really need to make the big breakthroughs.
7: I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, he, he was one of the greatest astrophysicists of the 20th century. It's a pity that even on things that he was wrong, he insisted on continuing to hold to those ideas.
2: Now, I think the, the most famous of these celebrity goofs is probably Einstein's Biggest Blunder. I think there have been books written with that title, actually. Can you briefly recap how and where he went awry?
7: Basically, he thought that the universe was static. But, you know, a universe in which you only have gravity cannot be static because everything attracts everything else. So this universe would collapse under its own weight, basically. So in order to make his universe static... He added a term into his equations that added a repulsive force that precisely balanced the attractive force of gravity everywhere. Well, then Edwin Hubble and Georges Lemaitre discovered that our universe is in fact expanding. When Einstein heard that, he said, wait a second, then I don't need to balance everything because gravity would just slow down the expansion. And he took that term out. Now, some people say he called it his biggest blunder. I say he probably never quite used that phrase. But he did regret having had that term in. Well, as you know, in 1998, we discovered that the expansion of our universe is speeding up. It's accelerating. And as far as we can tell, do you know what's causing that speeding up? Yeah, Precisely wh- that term that Einstein took out of his equation. If he made a blunder at all, it was taking that term out rather than putting it in.
2: Well, that's kind of interesting because he's the first person you've mentioned who actually admitted he had made a mistake, but his mistake was in admitting that he made a mistake. Actually, it wasn't a mistake.
7: That's right. Some people are just so smart that what they think are mistakes turn out to be fantastic insights.
2: (laughs) Well, the stories you tell, Mario, of these name-brand blunders are certainly interesting, but are they exceptional? How frequent are blunders of this magnitude in science?
7: They are actually very, very frequent. I mean, you know, we have this uh, sometimes concept that, that science is some sort of a direct march to the truth, when in fact it's nothing like that at all. Science progresses in this zigzag path with many, many false starts, many blind alleys, many times where you need to return to the starting point and so on. This is really how progress in science is achieved.
2: But does this serve the people who don't want to believe in science? I'm thinking here of Darwinian evolution, climate change, that sort of thing. I mean, you point out in your book that Darwin himself made a brilliant blunder. Does this justify the critics of, uh, you know, evolution or climate change?
7: Absolutely not, because, you know, what the greatness of science is, everything that you really can call science, is that it can make falsifiable predictions. It makes predictions that can be tested by further experiments or observations. And if those further experiments or observations show the theory not to be right, then, you know, scientists change the theory. They don't just hang on to the theory and say that the observations are wrong. So this is the greatest thing about the scientific method that it makes predictions. If it cannot make predictions, it's not a scientific theory.
2: Well, finally, Mario, you're a research scientist there. Do you ever have the feeling that if you aren't making blunders, you're probably not on the edge of uh, research?
7: I would say probably if you are not making any mistakes, you probably don't make very interesting science. I mean, if you are, you know, trying to do cutting-edge science, then you have to sometimes think in unconventional ways, and you have to also take some calculated risks. And when you do that, you know, some fraction of the time you're going to make mistakes.
2: Mario Livio, thanks so very much for being with
7: us today. Thank you for having me.
1: Mario Livio is an astrophysicist at the Space Telescope Science Institute and the author, most recently, of Brilliant Blunders from Darwin to Einstein, Colossal Mistakes by Great Scientists that Changed Our Understanding of Life and the Universe. So what we've learned in the show is that we are ignorant about a lot of things, perhaps we all knew this, but we are also supremely ignorant about our own ignorance. (laughs) it's, It's sort of hard to keep track of your own ignorance, isn't it, and figure out whether you're right or whether or not you're wrong. Now I find myself questioning just about everything after talking to David Dunning.
2: It's not so hard for me to keep track of my ignorance. My friends do that very well. But just as all humans are susceptible to the common cold, I guess we're just all susceptible to making blunders. What I find interesting is not that, for example, scientists make blunders, but they'll defend them to the end.
1: People who are non-scientists will defend them to the end, too,
2: a lot of their ideas as well. But I guess the saving grace for science, at least, is that it's a joint effort. It's a societal effort. If somebody has an idea, even somebody as brilliant as Albert Einstein, thousands of people thereafter will try and prove it wrong or right. So in the end, one person, one scientist, well, they're not going to lead us astray for very long.
1: Thanks to a production team that we are certain has tremendous talent, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance.
2: Also thanks to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, where scientists investigate the origin and nature of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to skeptic check. Are you sure you're sure? If you'd like to
1: hear more Big Picture Science, you can peruse our archives on our website, bigpicturescience.org.
2: And if you're a podcast listener but you would prefer to replace it with over-the-air radio because you feel certain in the subliminal subconscious cortex of your brain that it's better... Check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, well, consider letting them know you like the show. Oh, and have a comment, a criticism, or a suggestion? Well, throw in some praise for leavening, and then email it all to bigpicturescience at seti.org.
3: Now, take Einstein. He came up with the theory of relativism, right? So here's how it works. Compared to you, I'm an attractive guy. Now, take Hank over there. Compared to him, well, there's aspects of my character I could work on, like my glutes. And this theory of Einstein's was the foundation of quantum automotive mechanics.
0: Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. You don't need to be a scientist to hold that lamp. Look for evidence. Keep on thinking. Trimberger.org.